0: This is an exciting place to be, and I'm, my name is Pastor Bill Tweed, and I'm, just. it's just such an honor just to be a part of the American Restoration Tour uh, that Brother David and Brother Chad are part of, and I just consider it a great honor to be part. But, you know, I, I know you're pastor from a long time ago. And let me tell you, tell you some things about him. About 20-some years, I don't even remember. He came to our church when he was a traveling evangelist. He was awesome then, and he's even more awesome now. <laughs> okay, now <laughs> I just love this guy. I love what you have here. It's beautiful. The Lord is blessing it. And Pastor Tim, thank you so much. We are, we are very thankful. And tonight, it's, it's my honor introduce the founder and CEO of Faith Wins, Chad Conley. And like I said before, I've got a cheat sheet a mile long on this guy because he's he's got so many accomplishments we couldn't begin to articulate all. But I'll just say a few of them here. And that I I personally have known Chad since 2013 as a result of our paths crossing on a couple of candidate vetting tours to Israel and to Poland. And uh, I've always kind of just known him from afar at first and more and more and gotten to know him better and better. So i very thankful for his life. He's one of these guys that kind of what he used to do for the RNC, now he's doing for Jesus. I love that. Chad was the RNC's first ever national director of faith engagement, a key position which was, had a huge impact on the 2016 election. Chad served two terms as chairman of the South Carolina Republican Party. He's hosted two nationally televised debates that raised over $50 million in revenue. He held the largest presidential preference primary at the time in South Carolina's history. And since 2013, Chad has been in 43 states, and as I said, uh, probably a lot more than that now, spoken to 100,000 pastors and diverse faith leaders about the importance, and this is what I like most of all, about pastoral leadership in the public arena. We need to get back to that. That is so important. His efforts have resulted in the highest evangelical voter turnout in modern American political history for the election of 2016. Chad is featured as a featured commentator on Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, ABC, CBS, NBC, and others. But more importantly, Chad is not only a great patriot, but a God-fearing Sunday school teaching Bible-caring brother in the Lord who loves and serves his wife Donna and their four children. He's from Prosperity, South Carolina. And we're gonna give him a great big hand after we see a video on the overhead here in just a few moments, and then you can welcome our brother to the the podium, amen. I wanna say patio, this looks almost like a patio.
1: What would happen if just four to 5% of those 30 to 40 million non-voting Christians got off the sidelines, registered to vote, and showed up at the polls? the church will have a voice.
2: My name is Chad Conley. When I founded Faith Wins, it was to spread the truth that God's role in America is irreplaceable. Faith wins when people of faith vote their values. Our mission is laser focused on educating, activating, and mobilizing faith leaders, providing them with the tools, the resources, and the messaging to leverage their impact in the political and the government arenas. We cultivate, develop relationships with pastors who share the whole counsel of God, who stand for truth. In just a few short years, we've engaged with over 50,000 faith leaders from all 50 states. We've done hundreds of meetings with some of America's leading congressmen, senators, political thought leaders, pastors, and more. And and most importantly, we've actually registered over one million new evangelical voters during an unprecedented time, of unparalleled success, and all accomplished with just a part-time team. People ask me all the time, what's the secret? It's God's ordained, from the pulpit to the pews, committed to faith, family, and freedom, because with Him, all things are possible. This, 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 this,
1: this is our 1776
0: moment
2: now more than ever america's founding principles that were built on biblical values are under attack
3: the battle for the soul of our nation has never been greater than it is today god has commanded us
2: as his children to be salt and light america's great awakenings and revivals have always begun in the local church people of faith
3: Do not underestimate your influence. You can influence policy
0: decisions and elect public servants with a grounded biblical view who will stand for religious freedom. Support traditional marriage and the family. Defend
1: and support Israel. A voice for the unborn. People who will defend our democracy and have secure elections.
2: If believers won't step up to the plate and get involved, who
1: will? Who will? Who will? Who will? Who will?
2: Who will? Who will? You know, it's really not about politics or party or politicians or personality. It's about policies and principles that most closely align with our biblical worldview. From the courthouse to the state house to the White House and beyond. Good evening, how are y'all doing? Thank y'all so much for having us. I don't know if this is our 1776 moment, but I do know whatever we're facing, it's gonna take some backbone. And I wanna applaud your pastor, because he's got backbone. And uh, I'm really proud to know you, brother. Deep bow. And, uh, I believe God's looking for more people just like Pastor Tim, and uh, we got the great pleasure of, we uh, started in Minnesota Sunday night, and we went to Wisconsin. We're not really trusting the airline timing right now, so we're driving, and uh, we went all the way to Milwaukee and came over here a couple nights ago. We've been to Des Moines and uh, Cedar Rapids and wherever we are now, the Quad Cities, and uh, I fly to Dallas in the morning and then we go to Pennsylvania next week. We are committed to the idea that Christian voices and votes ought to be felt and heard throughout the land. And I want to give you a little bit of background because I think now's time. Thank you. So uh, I'm not from here. I'm, from, I'm just south of here in a little town in South Carolina called Prosperity. It, it ain't, but we call it, it's Prosperity. And um, there's a famous road sign that says Clinton to the left and Prosperity to the right. And uh, I live over here and Prosperity's a Great, yeah, y'all got it. Uh, a little slice of Americana. Uh, literally, uh, we have about 400 people counting the animals. We have a traffic light now and we're growing. So uh, sometimes there's cars there. And I uh, grew up with a drug problem. My daddy drugged me to church and drugged me to youth group. And uh, my dad didn't have time out, he had wear out. It was belt clear and loop time. Here comes Bruce. And after a while, your brain and behind have a conversation obedience is better than sacrifice and so um, My dad's still my hero. He's 83. He's a great curmudgeon. I uh, went to Clemson met my uh, my wife a college sweetheart went in the army uh, In the army. I think it reinforced my dad's principles my church principles I, I gave my heart to Jesus at a church camp in Anderson, South Carolina in 1976 and uh, I got it in the army and I had never really figured that out I never asked myself do I really believe what I really believe you ever hit that And I think climbing in that M1A1 Abrams tank, which, by the way, I loved, and we loved blowing stuff up. That was very cool. And um, I never had to get fired at and shot at, thank the Lord, but I started thinking about freedom. I started really considering what's this thing called freedom. You know, Jesus came to set us free ultimately, and in a human sense, we can't duplicate what he's done. In a human sense, though, maybe those men and women who died for this thing called freedom may be the closest thing in the flesh we can give. Maybe we can, maybe that's what they've done. And it just, it was striking to me. People died. And we live in a country where we have a bunch of whiners. And, and our country's so special, even the people that hate it won't leave. Isn't that great? I mean, it's, I, think, I, think, I think that's fantastic. And all you got to do is point at the long line waiting. Hey, if it's so bad, they wouldn't be climbing over to get here, right? I mean, people want to be in this thing for freedom we take it for granted. And so my wife and I get involved in politics. And I agree, poly means many, tick means blood suckers. I didn't want to do it either. Uh, I wasn't called to run at that time, I, but I knocked doors. Uh, we made phone calls. We, we decided we're going to put people in office. We recognized very early on, Jesus is not running for office. Nowhere, no how. There's two imperfect human beings. And therefore, don't vote on personality or party or anything like that, like I said on the video. What do they stand for? And I decided really early on as a Christian, I could never vote for anybody who would take a baby's life from a mommy. Never have. And you know what? Uh, If you're wrong on that, you're wrong on tax policy or foreign policy. And it just is. If somebody will take your life of an innocent Preborn, unborn baby—they'll take your liberty, and boy, we've gotten a dose of that in the last couple of years, won't we? Hadn't we? And uh, so Michelle and I are doing our thing. We get involved. The boys come along. A real short story, but it's how God works. Uh, in '05, uh, my wife's mom died. It spun her out. In '06, uh, my wife, 18 and a half years, took her own life, committed suicide. Um, left me a single dad with two little boys that saw something nobody should ever see. Uh, I had spoken at Chick Fil A the week before, and. Said something I never remember saying, and the best stuff comes from the Holy Spirit, right? Not from you. But I remember saying, oh, man, this, Lord, that was good. I'm going to steal that. The boys were sitting over there in the corner. The whole Chick-fil-A company's there on a Monday morning, and I'm doing the devotional. And I, I said, you know, I've messed up. I've made mistakes. I've had business failures. But I'm not going to be a failure before God and man with my wife, Michelle, and my little boys. And I remember going, hey, I'm going to use that again. Well, that was Monday. On Sunday, we walk in from church to find her. She had put a gun in her mouth, and uh, as soon as I, the boys walk in on my heels, and I, I pull her close to me, and go to your room, go to your room, I call 911, I call my mom and dad, come get the boys, I call her dad, you know, Michelle's gone, please come, and um, I laid her back down, and Romans eight twenty eight hit me in the face, and I'm having this conversation with God, Now y'all know what the scripture says, it says, and we know confidence in we know all things work together for good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose I laid her back down I said really Lord all things because the devil said to me ha ha you failed I felt the Lord put on my heart this wasn't my plan but I have a plan for Satan's disruptions now I wasn't studying Romans 8 I had not read it lately but I had I had hit it in my heart as scripture says and so the Lord said did you believe it yesterday yes Lord I did he said, I need you to trust me and believe it today. And I told him I would. Now, I was a mess. I had a horrible time. I fainted in the casket room, picking out a tombstone. Wasn't something I'd ever even processed and had through my go through my brain matter. Several months of just sobbing. The boys saw me sob, but I kept telling them, God's got a plan, God's got a plan, God's got a plan. I'm on a pro-life board in South Carolina, and one of my buddies The very first meeting I go to in November, just five months later, right? And he's come up to me. You got to meet this girl. I'm like, J.D., get out of my face. Man, I'm having a hard time. And the second meeting, he gets in my face and he gets in my grill. And I said, J.D., I'm having a hard time. He said, man, Chad, I've been watching you speak for years. This ain't going to beat you. He said, you know that talk you do on counting your blessings? Pastor, you hate it when people use your words against you. I I do. (laughs) I said, yeah. He said, read your notes. And I wrote down three prayers, 103 blessings, I go to the next meeting, he says, you gotta meet this girl. I said, all right, what's her name? He said, Dana. I said, uh, how'd she become single? It was one of my very specific prayers that there not be a guy in the picture. Never prayed for a widow, never thought about praying for a widow, that's what I was praying for, I guess. He said, the same way you did. Turns out her husband killed himself almost two years to the day before my wife. Long story made short and I love to give my testimony because I know a lot of people out there are hurting and people do things that impact our lives and we don't get a vote, amen? And it's a ripple effect and, it, and there's a hurting world out there and I, I, I thought I'll never ever stand in front of people again, Michelle is my everything. And here Dana comes along and believes in me and that's 15 years ago, she had two little girls that lost a daddy, I had two little girls, boys that lost a mom. The kids are 25, 22, 21, and 20, and I'm blessed and highly favored. And um, I tell you that because we walk by faith, not by sight, right? I got to watch God work. It's an incredible honor. I got to watch him work, and I never want to minimize what other people go through because it's stuff. It's life, and people do things. But I also tell you that to realize this. If God wasn't done with me, he's not done with you. You're here. He put me and you right here, right now, for this moment in time to encounter and confront and deal with the things of the world. This is our time. God's tapped us on the shoulder and said, here you are. What are you going to do with it? This is your time, your stewardship, your responsibility. I get back involved in politics. I ran for state party chairman, and I get elected. Uh, Y'all may know Iowa caucuses, New Hampshire primary comes to South Carolina. So I get a big, bright spotlight. I, I did every political show on television. And I had a common theme. I was... Supporting my my state and I was also beating up the party for ignoring the faith vote That was my common theme because I just couldn't believe they ignored the faith vote and I said on TV shows It's not that my people my buddies in church want to be R's or D's but they do want to vote biblical values and these party people take them for granted And they don't even talk to him. Well, a guy named Reince Priebus saw me on MSNBC. It happened to be Al Sharpton's show, which I'm not promoting, by the way. And um, uh, he's beating me up about being a Christian and all this stuff. And so Reince Priebus texted me. He said, hey, I'm a believer too. I'd like to talk to you. And uh, you're right. Let's talk. Well, after the election, I go meet with him. We create a thing called GOP Faith. And I told him I'm not promoting a party. I'm not promoting a candidate. But I am going to talk to people about maximizing the Christian vote. You know, David will tell you, there's some 35 or 40 million people sitting in churches that don't even vote. And moving the needle a little bit would end a lot of this nonsense that's out there today. You know, if there had been a Christian grandmama, one of my grandmamas that are both in heaven, or my mom who's in heaven now, if they'd been in the room the first time somebody said, well, boys that feel like girls should be able to shower and go to the bathroom with girls, my mama would have picked up a chair and we'd have gone to town. I'm here to tell you. (laughs) And the fact... The fact that nobody did that because you'd have heard about it means there wasn't a Christian in the room. Amen? And that tells me we've not lost the battle. We have not even been on the battlefield. We have become a cruise ship as a church and we need to be a battleship. We're supposed to take it to the culture and we are failing, y'all. We are failing. We're getting our teeth kicked in all across the board over common sense things all because Christians don't show up because they this won't matter. So I worked for the RNC from 13 to 17. Uh, We know we flipped nine Senate seats in 2014 and and helped a guy who probably wasn't the most Christian one to ever run, hit 81%. It was a a record. Not all because of me, obviously, but we were intentional about talking about issues. I don't believe life is a political issue. It's a spiritual one. I don't believe traditional marriage is a political issue. It's a spiritual, biblical issue. The defense of Israel, that's clear in scripture. Those who bless Israel be blessed. Y'all know that. Religious liberty, those aren't political issues. Now, yes, they've been politicized, but that doesn't remove my responsibility as a Sunday school teacher, a husband, a dad, a deacon in my church. I gotta tell the truth. And we know what truth is. Truth offends people. You know why? I mean, pastor can go down here to the local college and they say, we want you to pray. Now, what are you gonna pray in? He can say, I'm gonna pray in... The wind or goat's breath or eagle's feathers, oh, that's wonderful. If you pray in the name of Jesus, all hell breaks loose because truth reveals error. And error only tries to suppress truth. And are we seeing that like crazy or what? And so here we were. I, I, I left the RNC because I didn't work in the, the White House. I think I'm one of the only senior staffers not to. And I started Faith Wins. On, on, it, it was a leap of faith. It was a God thing, and I decided I'm going to go everywhere. And Here's my ask. We're going to talk about this when David gets done. Two things. Can you maximize the Christian vote? Can you make sure everybody in your church is registered to vote? And number two, can you make sure they vote biblical values? That's it. You know, I can't tell you how many pastors around the country have been all over the place. Uh, David and I are in the middle of, we have 63 two or three more of these meetings between now and November. Uh, we're going to be in a total of 22 states this year. We have 60-something more meetings in the next 56 days, and I think we have 15 more states to go. And we're just trying to spread the word. We need your help. We need your help. We don't, we don't need you to charge the beach at D-Day, but can you register everybody to vote in your church? And can you make sure they vote biblical values? Some of y'all in other churches, tell your pastors, oh, we don't do politics. Tell me what's political about telling people to vote biblical values. That's a spiritual responsibility. Go back and read Matthew 5 and be salt and light. And it says, the scripture says, if you're not salt and light, you are good for nothing. To be thrown in the street and trodden under the feet of men. I don't know about you, but I don't want to stand before the Father and be told I was good for nothing. That doesn't sound like a good day at all. And so a couple years ago, I called this guy. He's been a friend and just a mentor from afar. And now we've been driving around America, flying around America together and people are great. They say, oh, we'll pray for you. And you guys are working tirelessly. No, no, we're exhausted. (laughs) But we're losing the country, y'all. And it's our fault and it's our responsibility. We've done a poor job of stewardship. And it's the least I can do. I tell my kids that they're in college. I, I hate being gone from them. I hate being gone from Dana. She's flying to meet me in Dallas tomorrow. We'll be together for a meeting there where I'm speaking. And then we'll hook back up with David on Sunday or Monday next week in Pennsylvania. Now's the time. And we're the people to go take our country back from people. They don't really hate you. They, they hate you too. They really hate him. It's not your truth or my truth. It's the truth. And that's what we're doing here. And I asked this guy would he go with me. And so we're trying to crisscross the country with this message. And see, what I recognize is people won't stand for truth because they don't know the truth. And when you hear David Barton, you're going to think you got ripped off in history class. And I'm telling you, you're going to want to go find your history teacher. Why didn't you teach me that? The guy has forgotten more about American Christian history since breakfast than I've known my entire life. He's absolutely unbelievable. We're gonna go all over the country because we're committed to maximizing Christian voices and votes all across the country. Take our country back for God. Not for a political party, not for a candidate, but for things that matter in a biblical worldview sense. You're in for a massive treat. You're gonna be so fired up. You're gonna be texting people, get your rear end down here. You need to hear this. Y'all welcome my buddy, America's greatest Christian historian, David Barton.
1: Thank you. Thanks Chad. Thank you guys. (laughs) Thanks guys. Very kind. Thank y'all. Thank you guys. I'm gonna cover tonight some things that I think we can document as truth. We own 160,000 documents. We have everything from documents from Columbus all the way. We have the Bible that landed on the moon in Apollo 14. So we have 160,000 documents out of American history. I will take things tonight back to the original. So it doesn't matter what someone's opinion is. It doesn't matter how many PhDs they've got. It matters what truth is. And we have original documents from which we know what truth is. And so I want to start tonight by going to the American Bible Society State of the Bible Report. Every year they do a State of the Bible Report. This year they did a state of the bible report for 2022 and if you look on the right side you'll see the blue drop and you'll see the the yellow how low it is what we found is that last year we lost 26 million americans who no longer read the bible at all just nosedive now it's interesting the american bible society defines a bible reader as someone who reads the bible outside of church at least four times a year that's a Bible reader, and we lost 26 million who won't even crack the book now. You see, what's happened is the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us in Matthew 4, 4, he says, man doesn't live by bread alone. He lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So we should understand that we've got a spiritual man that we have to keep alive. Not just the phys- We're really good at keeping the physical man alive. I mean, we'll do our three squares a day. There's no way we're going to miss a meal but the spiritual man doesn't get the same emphasis. He actually needs more emphasis. As a matter of fact, if most Americans should make the commitment that I'm not going to eat a physical meal until I have had a spiritual meal, most Americans would have starved to death a long time ago because we don't take care of the spiritual man the way we should on the, the physical man, and that's the one that's really important, and that's where America's strength comes from is that spiritual strength. So when you look at where we are, I, I'm going to encourage you. I don't know how much you read the Bible, but I'm going to encourage you to at least read the Bible every day. Uh, know for sure that Pastor Tim, he's already emphasizing that, but I'm going to take you show you historically what it used to be for Christians, and maybe that'll, that'll kind of say, wow, that's a different bar. I've never seen that one. So read the Bible, and why every day? Because Jesus tells us in the Lord's Prayer to pray for daily bread. And so if, bre- if bread, spiritually, we spiritual bread, let's get it every day. On top of that, I'm going to ask you to go a step further. Start trying to memorize a Bible verse every week. Now, Bible memory is a lot more work. You have to go over something and rope memory time and time and time again. But it's really important. I'll show you why it's important. If you go to 1787, in 1787, we're having the Constitutional Convention. There's 55 founding fathers there writing the Constitution of the United States. And as they were there, there is no one among the 55 that's more elated than Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin is the first guy in American history to call for the United States of America. We had 13 nations and they weren't states, they were nations. A lot of them didn't even like each other. And so he says, guys, why can't we be one? Why can't we be a nation with 13 states? And so he called for that in 1754, 33 years before the Constitutional convention. Couldn't get it done back then. Nobody was willing to do it. Uh, 22 years later, he is one of the 56 guys who signs the Declaration of Independence, announcing that we're going to become an independent nation. Seven years later, he's one of only three guys who signs the peace treaty to say, we've done it, we've become an independent nation. And then four years later, he is sitting at the Constitutional Convention helping create the United States of America. That's what he's dreamed about for 33 years. The problem he had was it didn't go the way he wanted to. And by the way, this is Franklin right there. And at this point in his life, he's 81 years old, and we're not impressed with that today because the average life span in America is 80 years old. Okay, the average lifespan in America in 1787 is 33 years old. So there he sits at 81, and by the way, if you're a high school senior and you're here tonight and if you'd been alive back then, you would have already had your midlife crisis because when you reach, I mean, when you get to 17, it's half over for you, you're done. So there he sits at 81. And at this point in time, he he really came in. elated elated finally getting to do it. It didn't go the way he wanted to because the states were nations. They didn't like each, North and South Carolina. North and South Carolina had border wars with each other. They didn't like each other. You had to change money to go from North Carolina to South Carolina. You had to change money to go to other colonies. They were all independent and don't want anything to do with you. And so he's trying to get these guys together. So when they got together at the convention, everybody had their own agenda. You had the Virginia plan, you had the New York plan, the New Jersey plan, the Connecticut plan. Of course, Connecticut, didn't want New York's plan. New York didn't want Jersey's plan. Jersey didn't want Virginia's plan. So five weeks into the convention it literally is falling apart. Alexander Hamilton says I'm tired of all the bickering. I'm going back to New York. I got better things to do. George Mason of Virginia said me too. I'm tired of the bickering. I'm leaving. George Washington had to talk him into staying. This thing is falling apart. At that point in time Franklin gives the longest speech he gave. It was Thursday, June the 28th, 1787 and in that speech, now Franklin gave a lot of speeches at the Constitutional Convention, and he wrote them all out and had someone else deliver the speech for him. He didn't, he didn't speak. He wrote it all out. But this one, this he is stirred up. His passion is there. This is the only speech he gave at the Constitutional Convention from the heart. He had no notes. He did not write it down. We know what it was because James Madison kept the notes of the convention, and he recorded all the things that were said. So he wrote the speech down. So that's how we know what he said. But this is the only speech Franklin just off the cuff. He he just talked in. And he was frustrated. He said, gentlemen, he said, in this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we've not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understanding? He said, in the beginning of the contest of Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. A little time out here. That's the room in which 11 years earlier they signed the Declaration of Independence. That's the room in which the Continental Congress met 11 years earlier. And Congress back then was not bicameral. We didn't have a House and Senate. It was just one Congress. But it had three chaplains. And we prayed a lot. As a matter of fact, by the time you get to 1815, there had been 1,400 Government issued calls to prayer by 1815. We've got hundreds of those from Patrick Henry and from George Washington and from um, you've got John Adams and Sam Adams and John Hancock. These guys prayer all the time. He said, guys, don't you remember what we used to do in this room? He said, and our prayers sir, were heard and they were graciously answered. He said, all of us engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintendent providence in our favor. And have we now forgotten this powerful friend? Or or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? He said, I have lived, sir, a long time. And yes, he had. He said, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. He said, if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We've been assured in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. He says, I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel, and we should become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. He says, I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. Now, Mass suggests that's kind of a religious tone to what he just delivered there? (laughs) May I also point out that without equivocation, Ben Franklin's considered our least religious founding father. He is. I don't dispute that at all. But least is a comparative term. Least as compared to what? Uh, Somebody here tonight is the least religious person here. That doesn't mean you're anti-religious or God hostile. It just means maybe you're 99.6% when everybody else is 99.7%. So he's the least religious founding father. No doubt about that. But here's what's interesting. In that speech he just gave, that speech was 14 sentences long. How many Bible verses did you see Ben Franklin quote in that speech? 14 Bible verses. These are the Bible verses Ben Franklin just quoted in that speech. Now remember, this is a passionate speech off the cuff. He's just speaking from the heart. How in the world did he recite 14 Bible verses in a speech, 14 sentences long. Jesus tells us the answer. Jesus tells us Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever you've hidden in your heart is going to come out your mouth. If it's anger, if it's rage, if it's forgiveness, whatever it is, he had hidden God's word in his heart. We're told to do that, and that's why I encourage you to memorize Bible verses. You see this throughout the American founding. As a matter of fact, it's, it's significant. Uh, Franklin and, and it, with the Bible knowledge that he had, we don't think of him as a Bible guy, and yet you just saw one speech. And I can show you tons of others because we've got so many of his speeches. Franklin talked had a conversation, an interesting conversation with the minister, uh, Samuel Cooper. Samuel Cooper is a famous preacher up in the Boston area, and Franklin was really close to all the preachers back then. He was really close with George Whitfield and the Great Awakening. As a matter of fact, Ben Franklin built a room on his house so that when George Whitfield was anywhere close to Philadelphia, he stayed with Franklin. They were just great friends. And the same thing with Pastor Cooper. He's up in Boston and and Franklin's down in Pennsylvania. But nonetheless, they write all the time and they're really good friends. And Franklin wrote Pastor Cooper and he said, Pastor, he said, you know, I've really seen a difference between what we have in America and what we have in Europe. He said, when I speak to a crowd here in in America, here in, in New England where we are, when I speak to a crowd up here, I never have to tell them the Bible verses when I quote it, and this is what he said. He says, it's not necessary in New England, where everybody reads this Bible and is acquainted with scripture phrases, that I should take note the Bible references from which I take them. He didn't, at the Constitutional Convention of the guys, as the Bible said, he didn't say that once, why? Because they all knew that. He said, I don't have to tell anybody in America, what the Bible phrases are, because everybody reads and studies the Bible. He said, but when I go to Europe, because he was ambassador to France, he's ambassador to England, he said, when I get to Europe, those guys don't have a clue what the Bible says, and I have to tell them what I'm quoting the Bible. He says, but I've observed in England as well as in France that verses and expressions, not uh, the verses and expressions taken from the sacred scriptures and not known to be such appear very strange and awkward to readers. When I'm in Europe, I have to say, now, guys, that came from the Bible. Oh, i would argue that america today is what europe was back then we don't recognize the bible verses when unless somebody points them out to us we're like france and like england and and back in the day we did so much bible study and, and we knew it so well another example let me just give you another example let me take patrick henry you know the speech he gave give me liberty give me death the reason he gave that speech was he's a young legislator in the virginia house of burgesses and at that point in time great britain is already started attacking Americans, already started doing all this stuff. And, and he says, we need to stand up and fight the tyranny. We gotta resist this. And all these senior guys say, oh, we can't do that. We, I mean, we don't have an army, we don't have a Navy. They do, they're the world's greatest military. power." You know, there's nothing we can do, and it'd be really silly to take on people that got that kind of strength. We just need to get used to living a different kind of lifestyle because whatever they t- And he just, he's had it up to here. And so the young guy stands up, and he just goes after it. And that's his give me liberty, give me death speech that he gave. He said, Are you, have you guys, have, have you lost your mind? Do you not like freedom? Are you not willing to stand for something? And so as he gives that speech, that speech is 14 sentences long. And it's interesting, when you look at the speech How many verses did he use? He used 11 verses, and these are the verses, and again, this is just another passion speech, and these are the 11 verses that he used. Now, I'm going to suggest that these are not the verses that most of us normally memorize when we memorize verses. Probably nobody knows what Ecclesiastes 9, 11 is or Second Thessalonians 1. But see, this is what he had hidden in his heart. And so as the feelings came, the word came. It came right out with him. And even George Washington, when you look at George Washington, he's elected president in 1789, the only president of the United States ever elected unanimously. As he's president, he said, you know, we've been 13 nations for so long. We have to change the thinking. We have to understand we're one nation with 13 states. He said, so I need to travel to every single state and make sure they understand we're part of the United States. So he does a two-year plan to go to every state, go visit them personally, be there, so that they feel like they're part of the United States. And so as he lays out which states he's going to in 1790 and 1791, in 1790, he, one of the states he's going into is Rhode Island. As he's going into Rhode Island, word gets out he's coming to Rhode Island, and the Hebrew congregation in Newport, Rhode Island, they hear that George Washington's coming to town, and they are happy campers. And so they write him this really effusive letter. Says, Oh, we can't believe you're coming this is so great, thank you for what you've done for religious liberty, thank you for what you've done for our freedom, we're such a different nation because of you, and it's just a really, really cool letter, I mean, they're just really thankful, and so Washington writes back a presidential letter, and it's kind of a cursory letter, It's like, well, that's really nice, you. thanks for saying that, and I'm looking forward to seeing you, it's a pretty short letter, so when you see Washington's letter, it's only two sentences long, and in that two sentences, he quotes ten Bible verses in two sentences, that's tough to do, When you read his letter, it's just one Bible phrase after another stuck together. See, one of the things we do is because we have all these documents, we do a lot of training. We do a lot of training of legislators. We do a lot of training for legal stuff. We do a lot of training for lots. And in the summer, we'll do training for 18 to 25-year-olds going into college because we know what they get taught in college. We do a lot of work in college. We do a lot of work with, with with. all sorts of government stuff and so we know what they're going to get trained in. we want them to see the original documents so that when some professor says here's what happened they go no I actually held the document that's not what you said and so we want them to have truth and one of the things we'll do on one of the mornings for just a couple hours we'll pull out letters of Abigail Adams and letters of George Washington and Ben Franklin all these guys we'll let them out and then we'll hand out Bible concordances said so, okay there's the letter here's the Bible concordance see how many Bible verses you can find in that letter and they start looking, wow, that's a Bible verse. It's not the verses we're accustomed to seeing or reading or hearing or memorizing, but their, their letters are written with it. That was the culture of the day in a very real sense. And so it's out of that culture that we have the country that we enjoy today. And by the way, these are the verses that, that Washington used. But it's out of that culture from these guys that we have the country we have today. And they had memorized those words. So that's what you're going to find through all of those letters. And that's why we show them to the young people. So here we are today with a nation. And, and in a lot of ways, we don't really study much of what happened or why or how it came to be. And we are different, but we don't even recognize that anymore. And again, I don't say that lightly because we have these 160,000 documents. Some of the things we have are old school books. We have the first school book ever done in America, 1690 in Boston, Massachusetts. We have school books over the next 350 years. We know what's been taught in schools across the generations. And here we are in America, and if you look at the history of the world, there's 5,800 years recorded history. There's been thousands of nations. There's 195 nations of the U.N. this year. We've had thousands of nations, and that means there have been thousands of constitutions. Cornell University Law School said, what's the average length of a constitution in the history of the world? And so they researched it. They went through all the countries, all the constitutions, all history, and they said the average length of a constitution in the history of the world is 17 years. Three days from now, we have Constitution Day, September the 17th. On that day, we will celebrate 235 years under the same Constitution. Now, nobody in the history of the world has gotten anywhere close to that. That's a blessing that we take for granted. We so take it for granted that we're playing around with changing our form of government. Let's, let's do something different. Do you know right now, polling, well, we do tons of polling. Polling writes right now, 75% of college students say, we want to get rid of the constitutional system and go to socialism. And 49% of millennials say, we want to get rid of the constitutional system and go to socialism. W- wait a minute, guys. 5,800 years of history, there's not a single socialistic nation in the history of the world that's preserved individual liberty and maintained national prosperity. Yeah, but it will work if we do it. No, it won't. Anybody that puts their hand on the stove is going to get burned every time they do it. And I don't have to put my hand on the stove to learn that. I can study history except we don't study history anymore. So what happens is we don't even know to appreciate how unique we are. In addition to the stability that we have, we also have creativity at an unrivaled level. We measure creativity through international copyright, patent protection, whatever. If you look at America, we are 4% of the world's population. 4% of the world's population should produce 4% of the world's whatever. Our 4% of the world's population has produced over 96% of the world's inventions out of America. Really, we're surrounded with stuff that other people wish they could just get part of. But we take it for granted because that's our lifestyle. We're used to this every day. Not the other countries who want to get in and come. And the same even with our prosperity. Uh, the, con- the, census- the Constitution requires that we have a census every 10 years, which we had in 2020. We reported the results in 2021. According to the most recent census, if you live in poverty in America, and we do not want anyone to live in poverty in America, but if you do, according to the census, if you live in poverty in America today, your lifestyle is higher than the middle class in Europe, which is the second wealthiest place on the face of the earth. Poverty in America is that high? Yep. The World Bank sets the global standard for poverty. According to the World Bank, if you make thousand dollars a year, you live in poverty. And yet this year, America, states like Hawaii, states like Mississippi, elsewhere, they said, you know, unless you make more than sixty-one thousand dollars a year, you should not come off government services because that's what you get on government services—sixty-one thousand. And the rest of the world's looking at one thousand, and we're complaining about the state of America. See, we don't understand how special and how different that is. And, and, and when you look at where we are and what we have, I mean, what makes us so different? Who, who are the leaders behind this? Okay, well, maybe the guys who gave us the Declaration of Constitution, maybe the guys who founded the nation, maybe we can say that they have some cause for credit. Well, that would be people like George Washington. That would be people like John Hancock and people like John Adams. So maybe we give them some credit and say, hey, they came up with a pretty unique system. But it's interesting, back in 1818, a young man named Hezekiah Niles wrote Old Man Adams because 1818 is 42 years after John Adams signed the Declaration of Independence. Hezekiah Niles would be what we would call a millennial of that generation. He was a younger one, and he said openly, I'm doing a history book on the United States. came out in 1822, Principles and Acts of the American Revolution. We have a a cool book. This book that he was writing back in 1818, he says to Adams, he said, look, I wasn't there when all this happened. We really appreciate it. We really enjoy living in this. But we weren't there, but you were. And so as I'm writing this, I want to ask you, where did you get these ideas? Because these ideas are so different from everybody. Where did you get the ideas? And John Adams wrote back and said, well, you don't know where we got the ideas. He said, right up top, I'd put the Reverend Dr. Samuel Cooper. And then I'd put the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Mayhew. And then you've got the Reverend George Whitfield. And don't forget the Reverend Charles Chauncey. He goes through and starts listening to all these pastors. Now, we might know who Whitfield is today, but the chances that we know anything about Cooper, Mayhew, or Chauncey, Slim to none, even though Adams called them out, even though they're written about in the history book that was done by Hezekiah Niles, Alth- We don't study preachers today, whether they're white or whether they're black. I mean, who in the world is Richard Allen or Absalom Jones? Who's John Morant? Who's Lemuel Haynes? Who's Harry Hoosier? Let me just take Harry for a minute. Harry was part of the Great Awakenings, and in the Great Awakenings we have great preachers. We have the George Whitfields and the John and the Charles Wesley. We have Francis Asbury, all these great preachers who drew tens of thousands of people into open fields and they would speak to them in open fields. Massive crowds, and yet Francis Asbury says, Harry draws larger crowds than I do, really? Never heard of Harry Hoosier. Benjamin Rush, signer of the Declaration, Benjamin Rush, John Adams said of all the 250 founding fathers, he said Benjamin Rush is one of the three most notable. According to John Adams, it's George Washington, Ben Franklin, and Benjamin Rush. We'll talk more about him later. Benjamin Rush, significant founding father, he says, I go to Harry's meetings, and he's the best orator I've ever heard. Wait a minute, you're running around with Patrick Henry, and you're running, and you think Harry's better, yeah, he's better by far. Harry's ministry was larger t- largely to the blue-collar people of America, the what we would call the rough-and-tumble kind of woodsmen, the frontiers guys, the hunters, what we call long hunters. A so long hunter is someone who goes out deer hunting. And comes back eight months later and found two more states somewhere. You know I mean? They just go out and they stay and they just keep roaming and they just, and, and that was the kind of guys that were really drawn to Harry Hoosier. And so rough and tumble, they cussed a lot, they fought a lot, they, they drank a lot, and they get saved and their behavior changes and they don't cuss as much and don't drink as much and don't fight as much. And it's interesting, Harry's ministry was along the East Coast. He was in Philadelphia and, and Delaware and he's in Jersey and et cetera. But as America starts moving west in the early 1800s, as America moves west, a lot of these frontier guys move west with America because that's what they love doing is trapping and, and hunting and, and fur and, and so they're out there and they all get out there and a lot of the converts come out there as well, a lot of Harry's converts, and they get out there. The other trappers look at these guys and say, well, those guys are really strange. What's up with them? And the answer was, they're a bunch of those Hoosiers. It happened to be the Indiana Territory. I wonder how many people who live in Indiana know they were named after a black evangelist. Probably not many. It would seem like if somebody had a state named after him, we might stick him in history books somewhere. We don't. He's, He's just not there today. And see, and that's, by the way, what we hear today from 1619, the CRT is, oh, the American founding is all a bunch of white guys. Well, granted, you take the signer's declaration, that that picture, it's all a bunch of white guys. Now, why do we even know what those guys look like from back then? Here's the deal. Back then, didn't have cameras, obviously, and it took a lot of money to have a picture made of someone, and so... Only if you're really famous, if you're a governor or a general, if, you're significant. if you did something significant, you get a picture made of you. So when this painting was made in 1821 by John Trumbull, he collected the portraits of all the signers of the declaration because they're all important. And that's how he did the group picture of them because he had a portrait to work from. He knew what they all looked like. Well, that's the, okay. Got it. Yeah, but how come we never talk about all the portraits of black heroes we have in early America? And I mean hundreds of them this is not an easy thing to do to have a portrait made you have to be significant and done something really significant we don't even know who these guys are. i mean on the right that's jack sisson above him is benjamin banneker then you got richard allen then the next row over on the left is john chavez uh, above him is harry hoosier then you got peter salem uh the middle center left is is haynes uh lemuel haynes above him as james armistead i just keep going through these, these guys We don't know these guys at all. Does that mean they didn't do something significant? Oh yeah, they really did. As a matter of fact, the guy on the left there on horseback with the blue jacket, his name is Wentworth Cheswell. Wentworth Cheswell, patriot in New Hampshire. As a matter of fact, that black man, Wentworth Cheswell, patriot in New Hampshire, was elected to office in 1768. He was reelected in his community for the next 49 years. He held eight different political positions, considered a founding father, was significant in the American Revolution, was one of the founders of, of, of New Hampshire, We don't hear anything about it. Wait a minute, he was elected to office? Back up. When was the first black person elected to office in America? 1641, Matthias D'Souza, he's in Maryland, he's elected to the legislature of Maryland in 1641. When's the first black person elected to office in Great Britain? 1987. When's the first black person elected to office in Russia? 2010. By the time we're even talking about that, we have had thousands of blacks elected office. We don't talk about them. And I mean, I can take you through the founding era, I can take you through the colonial era, I can take you through the civil war, thousands and thousands of pictures. We just don't get them today. And because we don't get them, we say, oh, it's all racist, it's all a bunch of whites. No, 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 no. We used to know our history. We don't know our history anymore. Why is it we didn't teach CRT 30 years ago? Because 30 years ago we still knew enough of our history to know it was nonsense to teach the stuff that we're teaching today because we don't know it today. And again, we've got original records from these guys. We've got all sorts of documents from these guys and, and books about them and what they did. They're just not available today. So we've become historically illiterate and that's significant. We shouldn't be. So when you look at what we have from the beginning here, what we used to teach in our textbooks, America's a special nation. And we used to tell students the reason America is a special nation is because of the Bible. We built this nation on the Bible, used Bible teachings. Now, today, we haven't heard that in two, three generations. And so it seems like a really foreign concept to say that. But you know, it's even possible, still in this very secular culture today, to prove that the Bible shaped America in ways that we don't even recognize now. For example, the way we talk to one another is largely due to the Bible, we have idioms phrases that we use on a daily basis to each other Do you know that we have 257 idioms that come directly out of the Bible you will hear these all the time and every one of them is a specific quotation of a Bible verse I've said a lot of these you've said them I could give you my two cents worth a leopard can't change his spots. All of this, these are all Bible phrases, and we hear them all the time in the way we speak. We're quoting the Bible to each other without having any clue. And by the way, younger generation, the ones that they've picked up on in the last 8 to 10 years, these are the Bible phrases we hear all the time from those generations. And one of the things I like doing is I'm listening to radio or watching TV or whatever. When I hear someone use a Bible phrase, I will note it. I'll say, this commentator, this time, this program, I'll send it to the office, and we keep a record of it. And these commentators have no clue they're quoting the Bible. But I will tell you, over the last four years, the network that has quoted the Bible more than any other network, hands down, ESPN. Now, they don't have a clue they've quoted. I mean, <laughs> even go back, go back four years ago, you know, LeBron is now with the Lakers. He's going to take them to the Promised Land. Eh, it didn't quite work out that way, but they're all the time using these Bible phrases, and they don't have a clue it's a Bible phrase. But see this is so much a part of our culture. Next time you go to Walmart or McDonald's or you go to Home Depot or Lowe's, wherever, you're gonna hear somebody quote one of those Bible phrases and you ought to stop them and say, hey, do you know what Bible verse you just quoted? And they're gonna look at you like you're crazy and say, no, I don't. What Bible verse was that? And you won't have a clue either. I mean, that's the problem we got. (laughs) We don't know where this stuff came from. Every one of them has an address on it. There's an address to every one of these Bible verses. I think where we are today is well described by President John Quincy Adams who said this. He said, with regard to the history contained in the Bible, it's not so much praiseworthy to be acquainted with it as it is shameful to be ignorant of it. I think today we've had a cultural default. If you had known those Bible references, we would praise you say, that's so amazing. I can't believe you know the Bible. In their day, they would look at that and say, wait a minute. You didn't know the Bible references to that? Shame on you. How can you consider yourself an educated person and not know the Bible? And and by the way, notice that that's a president of the United States who said that. You know, for, for the next several minutes, I'm just going to quote Presidents of the United States, and you're going to see that for 170 years, it was the Presidents of the United States who carried the water on the Bible in America. They're the ones who kept And You expect me, expect Pastor Tim to say good things about the Bible. What you don't expect, especially in today's culture, is that for 170 years, it was the Presidents of the United States who kept saying, guys, we can't be a nation without the Bible. I mean, they're the ones cheerleading in the Bible. For example, if you take Zachary Taylor, Zachary Taylor was a war hero. Zachary Taylor, he said, The Bible is the best of books. I wish it were in the hands of everyone. He said it's indispensable to the safety and permanence of our institutions. Why institutions? Today, we don't recognize it, but our free market system was built on five Bible verses. And historically, I can show you where they got implemented and who implemented them and what verses they quoted. But it's 1 Timothy 5.8, it is 2 Thessalonians 3.10, it's Matthew 20, it's Luke 19, it's Matthew 25. That's where we get the free market system. By 1627, the free market system was running in America, Apsatucket, Massachusetts. It wasn't running anywhere else in the world. That came from us. And also, our institutions like our Republican form of government. The Bible shows seven different forms of government Our Founding Fathers chose one of the seven that's known as a Republican form of government. It was not a democracy. The Founding Fathers pointed to that. There's examples of democracy in the Gospels, and they said a democracy is a mobocracy. They said a democracy is worse than having a dictator. See, we were a Republican form of government. They quoted Exodus 18, 21, Deuteronomy 1, 15, and 16, Deuteronomy 16, 18. The Bible says, choose out from among you Leaders of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands, have elections, choose your local, county, state, and federal leader, and choose able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating Covenants. There's your qualification for office right there. So we're told at the very beginning, elect leaders, and here's the kind of leaders you want to elect. See, our institutions, we, we don't even, do you know that even, I've been involved in 13 cases of the US Supreme Court, I was involved in a case this year, already involved in a case for next year, And if you go to federal practice and procedure, which is what attorneys use to practice federal law, if you go to volume number 30, there's 20 pages in volume 30 talking about what we call the due process clause of the Constitution. Due process clauses is the 4th through the 8th Amendment. You get the right to confront your accusers in trial by jury, all that. Federal practice and procedure, the federal law books point out that all of the due process clauses in the Constitution It's a 20-page section of the book, so that they all came out of the Bible. For example, the right to confront your accusers came from John 8.10. The right to to compel witnesses on your behalf came from Proverbs 18.17. The federal practice and procedure has 20 pages of the Bible verses that created our, our due process clauses. We don't have a clue. But see, that's what he's saying. He said the Bible's indispensable, not to our faith, but to our institutions. He says, especially should the Bible be placed in the hands of the young. It is the best school book in the world. I would that all of our people were brought up under the influence of that holy book. A president of the United States? And he was a tough old codger. He's not a guy we think of as a religious Bible thumper in any way, shape, fashion, or form. And he's still saying the Bible, that's that's our textbook. And then you have people like Ulysses S. Grant. He was president in 1876. Now that's the centennial of America. So he came out with this card. You see top left 1776, top right 1876. It says centennial up top, message of President Grant to the children and youth of the United States. What did he tell children and youth? He says, hold fast to the Bible as a sheet anchor of your liberties. To the influence of this book, we're indebted for all the progress made in true civilization, and to this we must look as our guide in the future. We've had lots of blemishes in America, but every time we've had one's because we got away from what the Bible said, and every time we fixed it, it's because we got back to what the Bible said. See, with race, that's a, that's a problem we've had in America, but you know what? So is every other nation in the history of the world. Nobody got out of it faster than America did. The first region in the entire history of the world to ban slavery was all the northern states by 1804. By 1807, March 2, 1807, America became the first nation in the history of the world to pass a law banning the international slave trade. In 1819, we put US Navy squadron off the coast of Africa to stop any ships going to Africa trying to take slaves out. Now, we were doing really good. The southern states, it took them until 1865 to get their thinking together, but nonetheless, we were way ahead of every other nation in the world. Sure, we've had blemishes. You know why? Because we're humans. That's why we all need a Savior. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, including every single nation. I will stack America up against any other nation. If you want to just go history to history, I don't have any trouble with that. And we've got plenty of blemishes. I can show you more blemishes than you know. Doesn't matter. We've done more good than any other nation in the history of the world, and it's because we get back to this when we get off track. There's always people that take us back to God's word. So this is part of what we've had for so long, and Dr. Benjamin Rush, and by the way, Dr. Benjamin Rush... John Adams is one of the three most notable. This guy signed the Declaration, ratified the Constitution, served in three different presidential administrations. He's also the most famous doctor in American history. He's called the father of American medicine. He started five universities. He's called the father of public schools under the Constitution. He started the first Bible Society in America. He started the first Sunday School Movement in America. He started the first Abolition Society in America. He trained the first black physicians. He started academic education for women. It's just unbelievable what the guy did. But... Pub, father of public schools under the constitution because of a piece he did in 1790. He said now that we're one nation here's what we need to teach in our public schools and then 1791 he did this piece which gave a dozen reasons we would never take the bible out of public schools. So here's the father of public education saying now here's a dozen reasons we'll always make sure the bible stays in schools and he says this. He says, the great enemy of the salvation of man, in my opinion, never invented a more effectual means of extinguishing Christianity from the world than by persuading mankind that it was improper to read the Bible at schools. He says, if you ever believe that lie that it's not proper to read the Bible schools, that will wipe out Christianity. And we have seen the influence of Christianity diving in, in a number of years. But you see, the Founding Fathers were so open about the influence of the Bible and how it had to be part of education that when you look at the U.S. Supreme Court, in 1844, there was a case at the Supreme Court called Vidal versus Girard's Executors. In this case, the U.S. Supreme Court said, whoa, whoa, you mean there's a school in Philadelphia, a government-run school in Philadelphia that's not teaching the Bible? made the supreme court for not teaching the bible at the supreme court in an eight zero unanimous decision the supreme court said listen if you're going to be a government-funded government-operated school you are going to teach the bible we're not going to have any government-funded school that won't teach the bible now uh, by the way you all got that in your american history book right you all studied that It's a U.S. unanimous Supreme Court decision. I wonder why we don't study much of our own history anymore because it's really hard to make people do something that's wrong when they don't know the right history. If you get away from truth, then you can remake truth and make it anything else you want. We've always had secular public schools. Really? Then what do you do with stuff like that? See, we have secular public schools because of what happened in 1962, 63. Abedin Shemp and Murray Curlet. This is the decision in which the U.S. Supreme Court said, We're no longer going to do the Bible in schools. Now, why did they say that? Read the decision of the court. That's what we always do when we want to know. And if you read the decision, the Supreme Court says, we've had the Bible in schools for 170 years. And they said, our decision today to take the Bible out of schools, they said, is without historical or legal precedent. Wait a minute. You don't have any precedent for taking the Bible out of schools legally or historically? Why did you take the Bible out of schools? They found a psychologist who testified, and this is what the court said. They said if portions of the New Testament were read to that explanation, they could be and had been psychologically harmful to the child. We've now discovered the Bible causes brain damage. We've gotta save everybody from brain damage. Now I'm gonna argue that America suffered more brain damage since we've taken the Bible out of schools than we had before we ever took the Bible in the schools. Not the least of which is, let me hit gender for a minute. I'm a cowboy from Texas. You may not know anything about country life at all. It doesn't matter. I can take you to my ranch in Texas and put you behind my cattle herd, and all of you can tell me the genders of every critter in that bunch. It's not a hard thing to do. And how many genders are there? There are two. Oh, wait a minute. Didn't God say, and he made them male and female? Yeah, he said that four times in the scriptures. Now, what happened is, you know, the LGBT movement, then it became the LGBTQ movement, and then, if you will follow along the last 10 years, it went from four letters to five letters to eight letters to 13 letters to 17 letters. That, that's how long it was. When it came to Texas two years ago, uh, and they came to Texas because we're doing our health standards, and health standards mean sex ed curriculum. And Texas and California, the two largest states in the United States, we have 26% of the nation's public school kids, so they they... Everybody wants to influence all of our, whether it's history books or science books or health books or geography books, everybody comes to Texas to testify. So what happened, the LGBTQ movement came to Texas and they said, oh, by the way, it is now the LGBTQIA plus movement. What's that? Well, I, intersectionality, said, but we put a plus on the end because we just don't know how many genders there are. We know there's 93 right now, but we don't know how many more we'll find. And so we put the plus on the end. Well, that was two years ago. Last month, LGBT community did corporate training and said, we now know there's 150 different genders. We've lost our brains. Yeah, exactly. See, the psychological damage was done after we took the Bible out of schools, not before we took the Bible out of schools. And this is the kind of cultural fights that we have going today. So when you look at Dr. Benjamin Rush, one of the other things he said is the Bible contains more knowledge necessary to man in his present state than any other book in the world. I'm gonna give you three examples, very practical examples of how accurate he was with that statement. This is a man named Matthew Murray. Matthew Murray was born in 1801. So he's growing up under the founding fathers. He's growing up in the administration of Jefferson and Madison, those, those guys. And he loved the sea. So he joined the Navy and went to sea as a as a sailor then he became a midshipman then he became an officer then he became a captain uh, he loved the sea so after he got out of the navy he got his own ships and he was a captain of his ships and he had a fleet of ships he just loved the sea and one day he was ashore and he had a stagecoach accident where it crushed the bones in his leg and his leg never grew back right, so he could never go back to sea because he couldn't keep his balance because the leg wasn't straight with the medical technology they had at that point in time. But he loves the sea. So what happens is he stays connected to the sea. He studies the sea. He writes about it. He discovers all sorts of things. He's called the father father of modern oceanography. He's the guy who found out that there were jet streams in the ocean. And that if you'll put your ship in this jet stream, it'll get you here so much faster. For example, if you wanted back in his day, if you wanted to go from Boston to San Francisco, you could. But you had to take a ship and you had to go around all of South America. To, now, you could go across inland, but that's, you're probably going to die before you get there if you have to go across all that area in the mountains and everything else in the deserts. So you would take a ship and go down below South America, come back up over in San Francisco. It took you six months to make that trip. Because of his charts, he says, guys, there's jet streams in the ocean, and if you'll move your ship over here about five miles, you'll get there weeks earlier. What happened was that six-month trip, when you used his charts, became a three-month trip. Man, that's a must. That must be fast-moving water in the ocean. It was, and he found it for every continent. So you want to go from here to Europe? And by the way, what what difference did that make? Well, if you're a ship captain, if you got a shipping company, you can now get twice as many trips in in the same period of time as you had before. Which means a lot more income, which means a lot more prosperity, which means prices go down because more things are available now. So everybody starts prospering. That's where that's where our economy started booming. It was just amazing what happened when you could change transportation. But here's my question. He did this in the early 1800s. What kind of satellite technology did he use to be able to find out there were jet streams in the ocean and where they were? He told us how he learned about this. He said he was at home sick one day in bed, and he asked his his family to read the Bible out loud to them. And they did, and they read from Psalm 8, and part of Psalm 8 says this. It says, Lord, thou madest man to have dominion over the works of thy hand. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, and the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes through the paths of the sea. He said, read that again. See, what jumped out at him was this. And he had him read it. He had him read it, read it, reread it, reread it. He kept saying, read that again. And he wrote, he says, if God said there are paths in the sea, then there are paths in the sea. And I'm going to find the paths in the sea. That's what set him in that direction was to find the pathways in the sea. That's where the charts came from. And by the way, if you doubt that there's pathways in the sea, just watch Finding Nemo. Really easy. You'll see. (laughs) Pathways in the sea. It's, It's right there. But that wasn't all he discovered. Another Bible verse very significant to him was Ecclesiastes 1.6. Ecclesiastes 1.6 says, The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on a circuit. The wind has a circuit? Yeah, yeah. Figured out that you know the wind goes one way in one hemisphere, goes the opposite way in the other hemisphere, and he figured out the circuit of the winds to the point where he became known as the father of naval meteorology. He could predict the weather. He said, guys, see those clouds, the way they're moving? You don't want to sit sail this week. You, you wait until after that's happened. For the first time, weather prediction, accurate weather prediction becomes possible. No satellites, again, Bible verses. It's significant. He is a major, significant scientific name in American history. Nobody knows about him today, but we've built plenty of statues to him. And the strange thing about the statues is every statue has the Bible right beside his feet. You'll see the Bible right beside his feet, every statue. This was the source of his scientific ideas, and by the way, I take you through lots of other scientists, including Harvey, who discovered the circulation of blood, and there are little valves in our veins and arteries that keep it going one, not the other. He quoted Leviticus on why he found that, and how how that God had created those little valves in in the vessels. I mean, it's amazing how much scientific information came out of the Bible back at a time when we didn't have technology. So that's one guy. Let me introduce you to a guy named James Kent. James Kent is the father of American jurisprudence. He's one of the two guys who created the judicial system in America. and. We had in America from the start what we call circuits, judicial circuits, circuit courts. For example, you guys in Illinois, you're in the Seventh Circuit, Amy Comey Barrett is the Supreme Court Justice over your circuit and so everybody's in a circuit and we got circuit judges and there's state circuit judges and there's state courts and we have all these appeal levels. Well it's interesting, why do we have circuit courts and why did we do that? And by the way, originally when the circuit courts were created back in the beginning, Each U.S. Supreme Court justice had a circuit and would get on his horse and would ride the circuit. Go to Boston, go to Philadelphia, and go to New York. Whatever their circuit was, they got on their horse and rode. You didn't all go to D.C. You went out to the... Why did we do that? James Kent explained why out of 1 Samuel 7, verses 15 and 16. The Bible says, And Samuel judged Israel and rode the circuit from Gilgal to Mitzpah, all the towns he went through. Samuel's got a circuit, he writes, that's good enough for us. If it works for Samuel, we're going to do that in America. So that's where we get the circuit court system. And then you've got people like Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin started the first hospital in America. It started in 1751, the Philadelphia Hospital. Why did he start the first healthcare system in America? He says it's because of Luke 10.35. And when he created the logo for the Philadelphia Hospital, Luke ten thirty five. he put on that logo. This is the source of the healthcare system we had in America. See, there's so many things that come from the Bible that we don't even recognize today. That's why President Roosevelt said this. He said, in the formative days of the Republic, the directing influence the Bible exercised on the fathers of the nation is conspicuously evident. Perhaps you can show me a textbook today where it's conspicuously evident. We don't, and this is even in Christian schools because a lot of Christian school textbook writers were trained by very secular people and they haven't seen the original documents or even gone back to the, the Bible was the basis so much that went on and, and President Roosevelt continued, he said, we cannot read the history of our rise and development as a nation without reckoning with the place the Bible's occupied in shaping the advances of the Republic. So this was a really big deal to these guys, and when you look at where we are now, statistically only one out of nine, or only 9% rather, only 9%, one out of 11, Christians reads the Bible. 72% of Americans profess to be Christian, and only one out of 11, or 9% read the Bible on a daily basis, so I'm challenging you. Uh, Hopefully you're not like the rest of the nation, But read the Bible every day. Try to get into God's word every day and try to memorize something every week. Get something, hide his word in your heart. It's what he says in Psalms 119. You see how common it was up here. So it's important to do that and only 6% of Americans right now have a biblical worldview. That means only 1 in 16 Americans. If I say... What does the Bible say about minimum wage? Only 1 in 16 is going to point to Matthew 20, 15 as the the answer for minimum wage. If I say, what does the Bible say about capital gains tax? Only 1 in 16 is going to point to Luke 19 and Matthew 25 and the teachings that are there about capital gains. Most of us don't know how to apply the Bible to every aspect of life or to due process or to why we get to compel witnesses on our behalf or why we get to confront our accuser. The Bible is the base of that, and again, there's so much secular evidence for that. So John Quincy Adams, I talked about him earlier. I'm going to use him again. John Quincy Adams, president of the United States, he wrote a book for 10-year-old Americans showing 10-year-old Americans how to read the Bible from cover to cover once every year. Now, imagine a president today doing something like that. What kind of a... Firestorm when that start but he did. We've reprinted that book. It's available as an e book and it's great advice for adults as well as for kids. And this is what he told the kids back then. He says, No book in the world deserves to be so unceasingly studied and so profoundly meditated on as the Bible. He says, I have myself for many years made it a practice to read through the Bible once every year. And that was American practice. Even before the Supreme Court took the Bible out of schools, in schools, we Went through the Bible every year. I mean, we'd read the Bible. If it it is not your practice to read through the Bible cover to cover once every year, let me challenge you to start that. Make a commitment tonight that when I come back a year from now, I will have read the Bible cover to cover. This is what we all did in America for so long, and now it's kind of foreign and doesn't happen very often. He continued to the kids. He says, I've always endeavored to read it with the same spirit, which I now recommend to you. Kids, listen up. I want to encourage you to read it the same way I read it. He says, I always read it with the intention and desire that it may contribute to my advance in wisdom and virtue. He said, when I read the Bible, I'm not looking to get blessed. I'm look, not looking for a spiritual edification per se. He said, I'm looking for something that will change the way I think my wisdom, something will change the way I act, my virtue, I'm always looking for application. And that's the way they looked at it. Matter of fact, he kept a diary for 68 years. In his diary, he has notes all over everything about what the Lord shows in the Bible. And one of the things he said, he says, my practice, that when I read through the Bible every year, and he lived to be 79 years old, and he started this back when he was seven or eight years old. So, you know, he's done this 70 some odd times. He says, every year I go through, I always find a topic and say, I'm gonna look at that topic. So one year as he read through, he said I'm gonna see whatever the Bible says about banking and finance. One year as I go through, I'm gonna see what the Bible says about criminal justice and due process. He would just always pick a topic a year and say, I'm just gonna I've got concordances, but I just wanna see for myself what the Bible says on these and that he would take notes that year as he went through it. So this was very common for us to do and again he's talking to eight to ten year olds, so that's you know, he talking to ten year olds that he wrote the book, so maybe that's the third or fourth grade, maybe. Let me show you even what happened younger. Um, every state has government records on its education system. So for example, you guys, eighteen oh nine, you become a territory you can go back and see the territorial educational records starting in 1809, it'll be an annual report that comes out. Become a state, 1818, great. You can start seeing the state reports that come out. And it's interesting to go back in those early records and see what was being taught in the schools. For example, let me take you to some early schools. i want to take you to New Jersey. And in this case, and i can show you so many, but I'm just gonna choose 1816 New Jersey. They're going to show you what happens with first and second graders in New Jersey. Here's what they say, it says, All the scholars of the first and second classes commit to memory portions of the New Testament or Psalms, a lesson of the Catechism, several hymns, and the text of the preceding Sabbath. Everybody in public school in New Jersey, if you're in first and second grade, this is what you're going to memorize. And by the way, what are the texts of the preceding Sabbath? That means whatever Pastor Tim talked about on Sunday, we're going to memorize those Bible verses. So whatever verses he referenced, we're going to memorize those. during the Public schools doing this? Yes, absolutely. This is what public schools did. And they had some kids, as we all know, some kids are sharper than other kids. And they talked about one of the kids that was really sharp. Uh, they said, one of the scholars is committed to memory the book of John, and the first 30 psalms together with the 119th psalm. First and second grade, memorized the Gospel of John, 30 psalms in Psalm 119. He was really sharp. The rest of the kids weren't quite so sharp. Here's what it said about the rest of them. The majority have committed to memory the Gospel of John. <laughs> the average kid has memorized the Gospel of John. Everybody does that in first and second grade, but we got one kid that added 30 chapters out of Psalms and Psalm 119, really? Common first and second grade is everybody memorizes the Gospel of John. Maybe one in a thousand Christians a day has memorized the Gospel of John, and that was first and second grade stuff back then. You may remember years ago, Jeff Foxworthy had a program called Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? Maybe we start one Are you smarter than the second grader, and we'll, we'll put Bible knowledge... This is the kind of stuff that went on all the time, which is why you find the Bibles. That's why when Ben Franklin gave his speech at the convention, he didn't have to identify the verses. We've been raised with this. This this is what we learn in school. This is the way we had it. So you look at where we are today. And by the way, with vaccinations, please don't think of COVID. We're so tired of COVID. Forget COVID. Think about a traditional vaccination, maybe smallpox or measles. What do we do with vaccinations? How does it work? Well, a vaccination gives you just enough of something to develop an immunity to it. I would argue that the Christian community in America today, we've had just enough Bible and Christianity, we've become kind of immune to it. We're not really serious about it, but we are professing Christians, but if it really came to having to quote Bible like these guys did, first and second grade, we're kind of immune to that. And I'm going to encourage you, break out of that immunity and get a really serious infection of the Bible. Get a really serious infection of your faith. Let it affect everything you do. And Within that framework, biblical illiteracy that we have is so high, it's caused us not even to understand some of the great institutions in the Bible. Now, if you go back to the institutions in the Bible, you remember that starting in the book of Genesis, Genesis 1, 2, 3, God ordains the family. we got Adam, we got Eve, they have kids. God said, this is good. That's what we call the institution of the family. If you recall, in Genesis 9, this is where we get civil government. Noah gets off the ship, and God says, okay, Everybody was killing each other and raping each other and everything was goofy. But now that we're starting again, he gave him what are called the Noahide Laws. There were seven civil laws. Here's what you do to murderers. Here's what you do to thieves. So that's the first record of civil government in the Bible is the Noahide Laws with Noah in Genesis 9. And then as you get over into Exodus, we have what we would call the church. It's the temple. Here's how God wants corporate worship to be conducted. So we start the tabernacle, and here's what he wants with the priest. And and so that would be the type and shadow of the church. So of these three institutions, it's interesting that the one that Christians seem to know the least about is government. Now it shouldn't be that way because if you go back to the American founding, you take somebody like John Locke. He wrote the Two Treatises of Government. This is a book that came out in 1690. Uh, He's considered a theologian and a philosopher. And in that book, he cites, he references over 1,500 verses to show how civil government is supposed to operate. 1,500 verses. Most of us couldn't come up with maybe 20 or 30. 1,500. So. The founding fathers, actually, Richard Henry Lee, who made the motion about the Declaration of Independence, he said, We quote, copied the Declaration of Independence from Locke's Two Treatises of Government. That book was a huge influence. But this is how we thought about civil government because there's so many verses on it. So when you look at that, we have a friend in Georgia. Our friend in Georgia said, and he's a pastor, and he said, You know, I'm Christian as a Christian. I study God's word. And he says, I've really only been a two thirds Christian, I've been really engaged in family and in church but I really haven't been engaged in the civil government arena. And so he says, I've been a two-thirds Christian and he hadn't been involved in the government arena but he really got convicted over that and got engaged and so he really has become a three-thirds Christian. He's now a full Christian. And the impact that he has made in a four-county region in Georgia is pretty unbelievable. And it's just because he said, I need to get engaged. He hadn't done anything spectacular. He's just gotten engaged and gotten people engaged and has turned that whole part of Georgia around. So knowing the institutions, being familiar with them is really important. And Benjamin Rush had a, a great explanation. The piece that I told you he wrote in 1790 on Father Public Schools on the Constitution, this is that piece. And in it, he says, guys, we've been 13 nations. Now we're one nation. What do we have to teach in our public schools if we're going to stay a unified nation? He said, our public schools should teach three things. He said, the number one purpose of our public schools is to teach students to love and serve God. He said, the number two purpose of public schools is to teach students to love and serve their country. He said, the number three purpose of public schools is to teach students to love and serve their family. Most Christians I know would say, no, you got that a little out of order. Family should come higher than country because family is so important. It is important. But Benjamin Rush said, no, you're wrong. It should be God, country, family, because he pointed out, he said, if you ever lose control of your country, it will become the great enemy of your family. And that's what we've seen. So many of the attacks on the family. We can keep our family all together, and the culture is killing us. I mean, we're seeing all the stuff that's going on in school. We thought schools were okay. Now we find that that's the source of all the cesspool that's been happening. You've got gender transition, wait a minute, what's this escape button you've given my kids on the computer so I can't see? It's just crazy stuff going on, which is why we've seen people looking at school boards so much in recent years. And so, recent years, two and a half years has been going on now. And they're getting elected to school board, and that's another significant thing about elections because if you want to be a voter in America, the Constitution requires two things. You have to be 18 years old, and you have to be a legal citizen. If you can do that, 100% of people who are 18 years old who are legal citizens can vote. There's a statutory requirement. We need you to register to vote. That way, you won't vote seven times, and somebody won't vote seven times for you. This is where it falls down. Only 65.3% of eligible adults are registered to vote. So there's 100 million American adults who refuse to get involved in anything with elections. We're not going to choose our leaders. We're not going to choose our school board members. We're staying out of that process, and that includes 40 million evangelicals. Do you know how different America would look if 40 million evangelicals carried their faith into that arena and said, hey, we're just gonna vote biblical values. This is really simple stuff. It's not a complicated process. So there are two types of elections in America. Uh, The first type of election where we have the highest turnout is a presidential election. And for the last 11 presidential elections, the average turnout is 54% turnout, but that's 54% of registered voters. That's 54% of 65.3%, which means that 36% of adults vote in a presidential election. It takes half of that to win, which is 18%. In the last 21 off-year elections, and this is when we choose our governors and our congressmen and our senators and our legislators, in the last 21 off-year elections, the average voter turnout has been 38%, but that's 38% of Richard, which is 38% of 65%, which means 26% of adults choose our governors and our senators and our congressmen, and it takes half of that to win. So what we're looking at is in the last 11 presidential elections, one out of five Americans has chosen the president of the United States, and one out of eight Americans has chosen our governors, senators, legislators, et cetera and then when you get to the local level it falls to six percent now that's six percent is 65 percent which means four percent of adults vote in local elections it takes half of that to win give you an example if you go to los angeles los angeles crazy city out there eric garcetti man did he dislike churches everybody else can stay open in covid but churches definitely can't and he has targeted churches in so many ways but eric garcetti mayor of los angeles and by the way Los Angeles is the second largest city in the United States. The population of Los Angeles is larger than the population of 20 separate states. So if you're Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles, you're like a a governor in 23 states. Eric Garcetti brags about the fact that he was elected mayor of Los Angeles with 2.9% of the vote. I know enough churches in, San, San, in Los Angeles, they could turn that if they wanted to. Now we don't get involved in that stuff. Same thing happened in Houston. In Houston, the, 20th, the fourth largest city in the nation, larger than 20 separate states, elected Anise Parker, first openly lesbian mayor in Houston's history. And when she got in, she said, Anybody who says marriage between a man and a woman, that is now a crime because she got a law passed on it for the city, and they went after all sorts of pastors particularly five of them. We call them the Houston Five. She subpoenaed 17 different forms of communication. She said, I want all your sermons, all your sermon notes. I want all your text messages. I want all your social media. I want to see all the voice messages on your phone. I want to see everything on your computer. And if you've said marriage between a man and a woman, I've got you and you've had it. Well, she was elected with a total of 3.3% of the vote. We got that reversed. We had a 14% voter turnout the next time and that policy is long gone. We got 5,000 churches in Houston engaged and absolutely crushed her. But see, it's because we got engaged. It's not that the other side is that much more powerful. It's got engaged. Then you heard what Chad said in, in, in Virginia. Um, faith wins, we get involved there, and 312 churches get involved. and So register 77,000 people, and Yonkin wins by 65,000. In, in those 312 churches, 2 Timothy 2.5 says you can't be crowned unless you run according to the rules. What are the rules of elections? Don't know. 1,343 out of the churches volunteered to find out. They were trained as, as poll watchers, election officials. They found 5.2% of the vote as fraudulent just because we put eyes on it out of the churches. You take 5.2% fraudulent vote out, that'll win an election for you. See, there's so many things going on. I want to give you, in the last part here, just some local good news. Uh, Let me take you to Minnesota. Minnesota, pretty crazy state, except Christians got involved there and won all sorts of school boards. Now, notice the the headline does not say anything about Christians. It says, candidates opposing critical race theory and COVID-19 mandates. Why does it say that? Because the media hates Christians, but they love CRT and they love COVID mandates. And they think there's nothing worse than to say that you're anti-CRT and anti-COVID. So you're going to see that through these headlines. Whenever Christians win, this is the way they describe them. And so Minnesota, we picked up all sorts of school boards in Minnesota with Christians getting involved, running. It'll change things in that state. It'll start changing things. I love this one out of New Jersey. New Jersey, 19-year-old who saw his senior year disrupted by COVID shutdowns. Unseats the incumbent in the school board race. So the 19-year-old senior said, you cost me my senior year. I'm running against you. He beat the incumbent by 17 points in that race. And by the way, it is really nice to finally have an adult on the school board in New Jersey. So finally get that happen. This one, notice Denver and notice Colorado Springs. We got 1,500 churches engaged in Colorado, picked up 78 school board districts. We have Denver, that's wacky crazy left. Yeah, now Christians are on the school board in Denver. There are all four school boards in Colorado Springs. It's changing all across the country. Wichita, Kansas, second most liberal city in Kansas. Kansas City, then Wichita. School boards, Christians got three out of four there. Uh, Treasure Valley, which is Boise area, most liberal city in in Idaho, got the school board there. And then this one in Dallas, anti-CRT. See, notice anti-CRT? I know the story. 51 churches got together in Dallas and said, we've got to do better than this. The 51 churches worked together and said, who among us are good qualified people for school? And there were 15 school board seats, and they won all 15 school board seats with those 51 churches getting together. Um, Again, Dallas is a really big city, and now Christians have the school board. You have the same thing in Houston. Houston, 2.3 million people there. We got churches involved in Houston. They won the school boards in Houston. And, I mean, the big school board in Houston, Houston City School Board, 5,000 votes was what we needed to win school board races. 2.3 million? Yeah, when only 2% turn out, it's not hard to, to win those races. And this is Fort Worth. This happened two months ago. Mercy Church in Fort Worth said, we've got to take control of Fort Worth. Fort Worth has just lost its brain. There were 21 school board seats in Fort Worth, and they got 20 out of the 21 just from that church being involved. So this is happening across the country. Uh, About three weeks ago, uh, Moms for Liberty got 25 out of 30 school board seats in Miami-Dade County, which is really a crazy part of the nation. Uh, They got dozens of other school boards across the state. It's happening all over the nation. This is not what we're hearing in the news. And I have to find these headlines and I look for them because I know what's going on in those areas. And things are turning, things are changing. So we need to become three thirds Christians. And back to where I started, let me encourage you, read the Bible every day, get into it. It is the most practical book you will ever deal with and in the same way, memorize a verse every week. This is not like second graders, i are not asking you to memorize the Gospel of John, although that would be a great idea. Everybody should memorize the Gospel of John just do a Bible verse a week. You get 52 a year that way. It'll make such a difference in your life and thinking. And if this stuff has been new to you and, and you haven't heard this kind of history before, I encourage you outside, we've got a table, and on it we have a book called The American Story, and The American Story goes, goes through a lot of what we covered. And there's also the Founder's Bible, which shows you the Bible verses which the Founders used to build certain policies and institutions, et cetera. So there's a lot of good knowledge back there. Chad, yours, bro. David Barton.
2: He's amazing. How many of y'all are going to go look for your history teachers tomorrow? I mean, you know. I know you want to beat feet back there and uh, get those books. I, I got to tell you, that uh, American story, I just finished my second reading a few weeks ago. It's, it's such digestible, short little chapters, two, three, four pages. You can read to your kids, your grandkids, put this stuff in their brains, and you see the Bible applies to everything, y'all. When people say, oh, the Bible's irrelevant, they don't know it. They don't know the word. God spoke to everything. And look, we just want to be a help. We, uh, I, I got to tell you, we stumbled into the voter, the poll watching stuff. I had a pastor buddy, Dr. Mike Edwards, who went into Charlottesville. We actually did this in 44 counties in Virginia. Because we had all these people in churches saying, I want to do something I don't know what to do. Well, I do know what to do. God's let me do this at every level in America and I know what would make a difference if we go do that and be good stewards. So I, I wrote a little note card, I gave it to pastors. We're here to pray for you, we're here to pray with you and what can we do to help? Three election commission officials quit in the next day after we went to visit because we started asking for the newly registered people. And people said, what are we looking for? And I said, well, you'll know it when you see it. That's how we found the 27 people, the same name who registered. That's how we found the 17 people because they called me and said, Chad, what do you think about this? 17 people registered at the same address. What do you think? I said, it's a big house. Why don't you go down there? They had a Sunday school class. We had a lady named Miss Bessie, literally who went there and found out it was a field. And so, all we did was we took those to the election commission and we started revealing that maybe there are people who might be cheating. And so, Dr. Edwards went in there and he said, hey, well, I see a sign on the wall now hiring seasonal workers to vote or to count votes during the early voting. He said, what are seasonal workers? And the lady said, well, you know, they pick fruit in the summer and the fall and they're available and they're inexpensive and we hire them. Dr. Edwards said, are they Americans? And the lady said, ah, oh, ah, uh, some of them. And he said, can I bring my church? We developed a QR code and nobody, unless you got to find a 12 year old, you can understand a QR code with a 12 year old. But if you hold your camera phone up and you'll take, go to that, it'll give you a website. And all we do is grab your email. I've got a pastor. All he's doing is connecting people, their precinct, their County. We're not trying to do all the training. We're going to send you to the right place. We think that the, the least thing you ought to do, voter registration in your church I had a pastor of 2,000 people in Asheville, North Carolina. He said, Chad, my people are registered. I said, Pastor, i tell you what, Pastor Sexton, I double-dog dare you. Y'all know the movie The Christmas Story, stick your tongue on the frozen pole. I double-dog dare you. I want you to do voter registration two straight Sundays. He registered 444 people in that church in Asheville, North Carolina. Do you know it moves the needle a lot, just a few points, if Christians would just vote their values? So we did this QR code. Hold your camera phone up to it. We'll grab your email address. Pastor Tom Alvis will get somebody on his team. They will slot you in. We think that's the least thing Christians could do is be involved in the process. We just want to be a resource, y'all. I believe it's time we take our nation back for God. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need our churches. God's going to do his purposes. But he's always looking for who says, here I am. Send me. And that's what we're trying to do. We are so honored to be here. Man, I love your pastor. I love pastor leaders. We need to encourage them. Y'all take care of this pastor. Y'all encourage him. Y'all pray for him. Because this nation needs pastoral leadership like never before. Thank y'all for having us. God bless you. Pastor.
3: I'm trying to do it. I almost got it. Um, Wow. That was a lot, wasn't it? I'm so thankful. I see all your phones doing it. Just keep doing it and listen to me. I'm here to close this meeting down tonight and dismiss you. I have one thing to accomplish before that. Um, And just before I do that one thing, I want to thank Bill and Julie for all your work and your labor of love. Thank you, David and um, Chad so much. What a wonderful, wonderful night. It's been a pleasure to work with all of you. And uh, when when each of you tonight finally get to lay your head on a pillow somewhere, may you sense the appreciation from all of us. And thank you for your love for God, for his people, and for America. Thank you so much. And um, before we pray and dismiss, I would like to ask you to consider doing something with Kathy and I Would you make a financial contribution to this evening? Um, And uh, with Kathy and I, let's join together and help cover. I I wanna tell you something, and I don't know if I should tell you this or not, but I'm gonna. I have never seen anything like this, I don't think in my life. They have transportation costs, ground travel, hotels, airline tickets, um, expenses, honorarium, staff. They have, a, they have, these two organizations have overhead. Do, do you all know what overhead is? And um, they have overhead. And um, I asked Bill, I said, uh, what do we need to do to prepare to, he said, Pastor, they're not going to charge you anything. And I said, well, how about travel? And transportation, and hotels, and food, and no, you just, whatever you can do, if you could do anything, if you can't, we'll figure it out. They haven't got one dime for us, and they're here, and they're gone, and um, they have a passion to do this, and um, I would like for us to attempt to take care of them. Now for some of you can join Kathy and I, you can do something significant. Some of you, you know, God made it to where we all get to be a part. He said concerning the widow's might, she gave more than y'all because he wasn't looking at how much she had, he was looking at how much he had left. And um, so there's some ways to give. Um, I'll just mention it to you. Uh, if you would like to give cash or a check, I want you to make it payable to Calvary Church. We'll give them everything. We keep nothing. If you'd like to, but we want you to make the check to Calvary Church, and we'll give them one check. Um, Our ushers are are ready right now. Will you come all the way to the front first, ushers? Just come to the front, and then I'm going to have you, if you need an envelope to mark your gift tonight, um, uh, I would ask you to, to use an envelope if you would. It would help our contributions team. Just slip up your hand and then our ushers will turn around and come back and serve you if you need an envelope. Now, if you wanna give online, um, if you wanna give online, and you're a part of our Calvary family, and you have our Church Center app, and you know how to give online, just go there, and and when you see the pull-down menu where it says tithes and offerings, you can pull down, you'll see the American Restoration Tour, David Barton, select that, and everything you give online will go immediately um, to that portion of our contributions with our contributions team and our bookkeeping here at Calvary. Now, if you're here and you'd say, I'd like to give electronically, I'd like to give something, I don't have a check, I don't have cash, and I don't have your church center app for Calvary church people, but I'd like to give something, here's what you can do. You can go to calvaryqc.org, that's our website. You can do that on your phone, on your computer, on your iPad. Um, and you can go to calvaryqc.org, and there is a Give tab, and it'll walk you through it. And make sure you put on there, in the pull-down menu, the American Restoration Tour David Barton. And so, trying to make it as easy as we know how for you to make a gift. And I believe that this is a worthy gift. And I want to thank you in advance for helping us to be a blessing to them How many know this is a ministry worthy of our being a blessing? Amen? Amen. Now, uh, again, if you're making a check, make it to Calvary. And um, I want to once again thank everybody for helping this night to make it happen. Now, what do you do with your envelope? Here's what you do. When you're ready to give, on your way out tonight, we're going to stand in just a moment, dismiss with prayer, and you're free to go. Uh, be sure and stop by the book table if you'd like, and uh, David Barton, I think, and his wife are already out there, and uh, thank them, and thank Chad, thank you so much. Wow, what a wonderful night, and um, there are slots in the wall. When you walk out of our worship center, this side's on the right, this side's on the left, there's a slot, an offering slot, and you can drop that in the slot, your envelope, okay? Make it real easy for you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for coming. Let's stand for a closing prayer together. Father in heaven, as Calvary gets ready to uh, start a Christian school this next year, one of my heart's desires, and some of the people in this room know this because we've talked about it, is that the Bible is on every page of learning for our children. That's what we want. The Bible is on every page. Lord, I pray that um, tonight, David's tremendous teaching about American history in the Bible would impact all of our lives in a profound way for the rest of our lives. That the Bible would become more front and center in our lives, God, as your people. And that we would step up to the plate and be three-third Christians. God, country, and family. And I thank you for raising up men like this and women for such a time as this. We thank you for it in jesus name amen hope to see you on sunday calvary folks god bless you all you are dismissed